Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Samuel chapter 26, picking up right where we left off. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hakalah opposite Jeshimon? And Saul arose and went down to the wilderness as if having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him and to seek David in the wilderness as if. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakalah, which is opposite Jeshimon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, and David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. So the Ziphites are the same traitors that we saw back in chapter 23, verse 19. They are Judean, so they're cousins of David. They're in the same tribe. They would have got together at Easter meals and hung out with each other. Um, and they are relatives. So David's being betrayed a second time by the Ziphites. The should be in italics in verse 1. It's now Zephites came to Saul. Once again, it's not all Zephites to protect the good name of the Zephite people. It's only some of them. So there's the word the, I don't know why they add stuff like that, but it's now Zephites came to Saul at Gibeah. So a particular group of them that have a thing for David. Um, and the Ziphites get sung about David. When he deals with his enemies, he just writes songs about them and puts it in the Bible for all eternity. So don't make David your enemy because Psalm 54 is about the godless enemies that, that harass the servants of Yahweh. Um, and the Ziphites are kind of, of pointed out in some of the Psalms that David writes as just these people. That said, if you've got people in your life harassing you and giving you a hard time about things, like you're not alone. Like It's been happening for a long time. Saul's gratitude for not being killed last week seems to be over. Like, remember, he was bawling, he was, my son David, and all these words come out of his mouth. But words don't mean much for foolish people. And you can't trust what comes out of people's mouths. You have to kind of verify that through their actions. So it doesn't matter what they say. If they keep acting the same way, then there really hasn't been a repentance or a change. So David has given him chances. He's actually had the opportunity to kill Saul. Maybe this is the time Saul will change again. The 3,000 is the same as last time against 600. However, the 600 is likely had, we know from chapter 25 that Abigail's whole household comes with David. And we know that there were men in that household that David was coming to kill. So it's 600 plus is the number he's got with him now. The thing with Abigail or Nabal's household is that that added actual herds to the king, this new kingdom that God keeps adding to without any combat whatsoever. David's got a high priest. He's got a prophet. Like, we just keep seeing the author adding these things to the kingdom. And David's building himself a kingdom. And this chapter's no different. We're going to see that this kingdom is different than the kingdom Saul has set up. It's not a worldly kingdom. It's something completely unique that grows because God adds to it, not because David goes out and attacks things. However, this is a low point in David's life. Like, this is, we're not proud of chapter 26 and 27. Like, this is going to, you know, David's probably going to do some of the worst 
nastiest things he does. He's all famous about the Bathsheba thing because that makes great television, but his low point is chapter 27. So we're going to hit that tonight and we will, we will not be proud of David this week. But as bad as David gets, God loves him and forgives him. Like we should take some hope in that. Like we're not as bad as this guy. He murders people. Um, and, but, and there's consequences to his sin too, but we won't get too far ahead. Verse five. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. Um, this is different than last time. Last time David hid in the cave, remember? And he, this time he's seeking Saul out. So you can see David has a little bit of growth here in that respect. And David saw the place where Saul lay and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp with the people encamped all around him. And then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zariah, that's David's cousin, brother of Joab, saying, who will go down with me to, to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. <laughs> like, okay. So we get an introduction to this character named Abishai, David's cousin. And uh, in 1 Chronicles 2, verse 16, Abishai becomes one of David's generals. He actually gets positioned. So we've seen him get the prophet, we've seen him get a priest, and now he's going to get a general. And this is how we're really introduced to Abishai, is that he's the guy that says, I'll go with you. So David answered, uh, in, in, uh, that's interesting, verse 6, then David answered. Who's he answering? Like just, if you look at the text there, it says he's answering, but who's he responding to? Is he responding to the situation itself? So David saw in verse 5, and then answered in verse 6. So he's responding to what he sees. This is, I think, interesting, and it's a hint that David's got that kind of relationship with God, that when things happen in his life, he sees that as God speaking to him. And we've had a lot of people in this room, we've had conversations about how does God speak to us. And it's different ways with everybody in the Bible. And one of the ways we see God speak to us is like, an event happens that's just got God written all over it. And you're looking at it. Now, there's a danger that you're reading your own map onto that. But sometimes, and in this passage, David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite, who's going to go down with me? Like, it seems like he's almost in a conversation with God because he's living day to day with God and living in faith. And then verse 7. So David and Abishai came to the people. Oh, I'll stop too. Abishai, his cousin. David has no plan right now. Like he sees Saul and an entire army of 3,000 people camped around him. And his thought is, I'm going to go down there. <laughs> like, I'm just going to march into the camp. This is kind of a suicide mission, which is why nobody, like one of his men volunteer for this mission. Nobody else does. But Abishai shows amazing faith because in volunteering, he's either really stupid or Abishai realizes God's with David, nothing's going to happen to him. Like, I'm safe, I'm as safe with David in the middle of a camp of my enemy as I am with anybody else. Like, this is all going to go well. So David and Abishai, verse 7, came to the people by night. So there's a plan. They go at the at a dark time. And, and there lay Saul sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. So a lot of times warrior would warriors even today sleep with their weapon right next to him. And that was no different in the, in the ancient world. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy. And he's whispering because it's nighttime and they don't want to wake people up. God's delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth. And I will not have to strike him a second time. 
So Abishai remembers last time when David's like, we're not going to hurt the king or I'm not going to hurt the king. And Abishai's solution to that is then let me do it. If you don't want to lay your hands on the king, I'll take that curse and we're going to be done with this running around from Saul stuff. So Abishai understands his, his king, David, um, and he makes it simple for David. Frankly, for David, this, I'm guessing, is kind of a temptation, or at least at some level, he's like, yeah, if Abishai does it, then God's curse is on that guy, and I get clean hands. But it doesn't work like that in God's kingdom. I think David understands, because he doesn't go for this, that you're responsible for even the people that are under you. And if you got people that are following your command or direction and they do something horrible, you have culpability in that too. That concept is not in the ancient world. This is God introducing a concept called responsibility and accountability into human history through David. Like, we just don't see that in other ancient texts, that idea that you're accountable even for the people under you doing the wrong thing. So David does understand that and he's not going to do it. But using Saul's own spear would have been sweet justice because that's the spear that he would have been throwing at David back in chapter 18 and 19. The same weapon he's using to attack God's servant gets used back on him. So again, you can't read too much into the situation because I, I think David's getting a trial here. And what seems right to people at the end of the day can be death, Proverbs 4.12. So what seems like a great opportunity, God's let us in here and, and we can just kill the guy, is not necessarily what God wants them to do is to kill him, but maybe do something else. So in every opportunity that we have to do the wrong thing, no matter how justified it is, that opportunity to do wrong is a trial or a test in our life. We can do it. And I do believe God puts believers into situations where they're tested and they're tried. So God has orchestrated, we're going to see, this entry into the camp, and he's got this opportunity to do evil. And God's interested. What's human David going to do in this situation? Is he going to do the right thing or the wrong thing? And based on how David reacts, his kingdom is going to look a little different. God's will will be done. He's made promises, but that will can be done with David or without David. So he's testing him. <laughs> One other thought with David is, I wonder if David looked at Saul sleeping there on the ground, and instead of hating Saul, this little spark of God's grace comes into his head, and he actually pities Saul. How sad that as Saul's done all this stuff to puff him up as a king, at the end of the day, there he is lying fast asleep on the ground. All 3,000 men don't protect him. Nobody has protected him from somebody that could just kill him in a second. And David maybe thinks to himself, that could be me someday. If I'm going to be king someday, do I trust the men around me or are they just leaving me to hang? And in the future verses, I, I, we're going to really see he's almost angry at Abner. And he takes it out on him like, who do you guys, you're not protecting your king. So if David's going to be a king, maybe this is kind of self-preserving. I think this is a little bit like when Bilbo saw Gollum. And he realized as he's carrying the ring, that could be me someday. And there's this little bit of pity, right? And Gandalf pointed this out to Frodo, and I'm going to read the quote. He says, pity? It's a pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many live and deserve death. Some die that deserve life. Can you give it to him, Frodo? 
Don't be so eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise can't see all the ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play in it for good or evil before this is over. Now, I know David didn't see Lord of the Rings, but Tolkien read the Bible. And he gets this moment where he got this opportunity to kill this guy. And then you're like, should I be so hasty to deal out death? Is that my job to judge people? Or can I just leave this in God's hands? We'll go back to our actual Bible here. Verse 9. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? So David's actually looking out for Abishai here. That's awesome. David said, Furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his days shall come to die, and he shall not go out to battle, or, and, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please take the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let's go. So David does think, we can still let this guy know we had him, right? And that's not such a horrible thing. In chapter 25, Nabal died immediately. Like Abigail went home, told him what happened, and his heart seized up and it was 10 days. Was it 10 days? He's dead. Like, so David's got evidence that if God wants to end somebody, he can end them. Like, every breath we take is a gift from God. We don't know if we're going to live tomorrow. But we have today. We're breathing right now. Glory to God. So David's faith here is rooted in experience from chapter 25. And the truth of the matter, God does own us completely. And we're his. So David's going to win a greater battle here. And, and I think this is, again, just like with Abigail, he's just, this is a win for him. Chapter 27 is not a win, but this is. He secures God's blessing on his kingdom by having this test and passing it. As the Lord lives, as David's vowing here, as the Lord lives, he, vo he vows wisely that it's in God's hands to do whatever he wants. And God can deal with this person as he pleases. That still allows the Lord, it's not, some people call that a vow, it's vow language, but he's not really vowing that he'll do anything. He's vowing that God can do whatever he wants, which is truth. And he can make that choice. So God's sovereignty is in doubt when we think of doing things ourselves. When we want to do something without God's word and without God's will, we're doubting his sovereignty to get things done. So we wait on his word and his will, and we're trusting in the Lord's sovereignty like David is here. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away. And here's the miracle. And no man saw or knew it or awoke. Three verbs there. Nobody saw it. Nobody knew it. Nobody woke up. That's kind of miraculous. 3,000 crack soldiers in a, in a war campaign in the wilderness against the shifty David and his men, those brigands, and nobody saw these two guys walk into the camp. Nobody woke up. You know, and, I, and, and, and they make note of it in verse 12, for they were all asleep and then here's the reason, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. So I said before, David gives God the credit for this. He sees this situation as a miracle. So some, there's a miraculous deep sleep that these men have because any military camp would have guards, right? There'd be people on guard duty doing the shifts. Um, they would not leave their king unguarded. That, that's unheard of. So when they walk into the camp and everybody's just sacked out, you know, something funky got into the chili that night or something, but nobody's waking up. So God gets the credit for a supernatural sleep here. Um, I'm thinking, how do you know that they're in a deep sleep from the Lord? I think Abishag tripped and like made a total racket, right? Like dumped the bucket down the well kind of thing. 
and they're thinking, oh, crap. And then nobody wakes up and they're like, okay, this is supernatural. And then they write this in the Bible because otherwise they're, you know, they're giving themselves the credit for being ninja-like as they walk through the camp. But they had to at some point realize this is kind of a supernatural sleep because, so I'm thinking it was Abishai. I think he tripped on something, clattered, dropped the spear and, you know, keeps making noise. Either way, nobody woke up. Verse 13. Now David went over to the other side and stood on top of the hill afar off. The last time he met with Saul, remember he walked right up, you know, to the camp. This time he's like a far away away. Like he has to, he's not getting as close this time. Because Saul's broke his word too many times. A great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, do you not answer, Abner? So he's taunting Abner just like Goliath was taunting the Israelites, right? We're on two opposite sides, and David's yelling across to Israel, only he's not cursing the Lord God Almighty. He's cursing the people in Israel that aren't serving the Lord God Almighty the way they should be. He doesn't target Saul. He targets Abner. Why Abner? Because Abner was in charge of Saul's security. He's the general. He's the commander. So then Abner answered and said, who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? I, I wondered about the are you not a man thing. And I wonder if that's because Abner said, who are you calling out to the king? But he didn't call out to the king, did he? He called out to the people and to Abner, son of Ner. So David's thing is to kind of correct him there and say, aren't you a man? You're not the king, you're a man. And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded the, your Lord, the king? Again, David's not just talking. He's talking to this nation of Israel. A lot of these people in Israel's camp are going to serve under David. He's training his own men, but he's also training the camp on the other side. And he's saying there's duty that you had, Abner, and you failed in your duty. So David's acting like the king, even with his enemy. Like, this is brilliant. For one of the people came in to destroy your Lord, the king, this thing that you have done is not good. <laughs> As believers, sometimes we're ashamed of telling people what's good and what's bad. But if we don't set that line, culture's going to go whatever way it's going to go. It's up to godly people to say, this is right and this is wrong. Abner, you left your king unguarded. That's wrong. Right? He's not, David's not judging him. He's just saying that you're not fulfilling your duty. And that's wrong to do that. So this thing you've done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you've not guarded your master. The Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was in my hand. Like he's showing off like, see, I was this close again and you didn't guard your king. So in that sense, David's thinking like when I become king, is Abner going to, is somebody like Abner going to fail like this? Because Abner will actually serve under David here. So why would he antagonize? Why would he use sarcasm? Why is David taunting? I think it's because this, like David was honestly frustrated that he walked up to Saul and nobody was guarding this guy. That he's a king without, a, without an army that serves him. So likely Abner had a puffed up reputation. He's the man. And so when David's saying things like, who's like you? Like, there's nobody like you, Abner. I'm talking to you. There's no other Abner that I would be talking to right now. You're the Abner. And he humiliates Abner in front of the troops. 
And this makes him fairly resolute in what he's doing. So he's training the soldiers, the men, about how David operates. Do your duty. Later they reconcile. <laughs> Abner's going to step up and publicly work to convince the elders to serve David in the kingdom. Abner becomes one of David's biggest allies. So what David's doing here in chastising Abner is he's teaching Abner what it means to be a man. And Abner responds to that. Now that might make some of you cringe a little bit, but sometimes when we're called out by godly good people, it doesn't make us angry, it makes us get better. Like maybe I need to step up my game. Wow, I really screwed up there. And at some level you wonder if like, because Abner does actively, by the way, that's in 2 Samuel 3 for the cross-reference. Abner steps up and actually advocates for David. So his respect for David goes up here, not down. And that's odd because we don't always deal with people with taunting them, humiliating them, and publicly shaming them, right? But in this particular instance, David does that, and he actually gains the respect of Abner, right? And part of that is David's mercy. He has the, sp the spear and the jug, and he's, not, he's showing people he's not a killer, but there's a way to do this that's just better than what they have. So he's still training them. As the Lord lives, he puts God out in front. You deserve to die. That's justice. You had a duty. You failed in it. And that's not okay because you have not guarded your master. He's still training them what responsibility is, what honor is, what duty is. And everybody's listening. Like all the fighting men of Israel and David's camp, they're all listening. He's training the whole nation right now. We'll see in Ziklag that hundreds of men join David while he's in Ziklag. A lot of those men are sitting in the Israel camp right now. And they say, that's the king I'm going to follow. And they'd rather serve under David than Saul. So everything David's doing right now is actually building the kingdom. In the same way that he chastises Abner, I think we can look at the New Testament and we can see instances where Jesus chastises his disciples. You know, Peter's questioning Jesus' plan of crucifixion. And Jesus turns on him and he says, get behind me, Satan. Like, that's not nice <laughs> by anybody's standard. But he's, it's not because he's mad at Peter or hates Peter or wants to send Peter away. He's training Peter to be a leader. That means Ch Peter needs a thicker skin. And he's got to deal with correction when it's deserved. And so when correction is deserved, sometimes it sounds harsh. Sometimes we, we never want to hear that. But we also know that this is coming from somebody who loves me and wants me to be a better person. I think that's how we should be reading this passage, but we can talk about it afterwards if... You're seeing other tones there. Verse 17. Then, then Saul knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? It almost makes me cringe like fingers on a chalkboard to hear that coming out of Saul's mouth right now. Because he doesn't act like a father, but he uses the language of God's people, even though he, ha he doesn't have the heart of God's people. And I don't know about you, but when you meet people of God and they use the language, but they act the other way, it's really cringeworthy. David said, it's my voice, my Lord, O king. He humbles himself again, just like last time. And he said, what does my Lord thus pursue his servant? Why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Actually, what's in his hand is Saul's spear and his jug of water. Now, therefore, please let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if the children of men 
But if it's the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they've driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go and serve other gods. David says so much in this. He's clearly showing humility using titles like Lord. He calls himself a servant. Um, and we just got done in, in Matthew chapter 20 where Jesus explains, if you want to be the first in the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be a servant. And David, he's not just pulling that out of thin air. He's pulling that out of the Old Testament and the model of David making, calling himself a servant. For what have I done? Consider that David's saying to Saul, look at the facts, Saul. What have I actually done that's wrong? Why are you so mad at me? Um, this is a great tactic when you're dealing with a family member or a friend that's just sick of hearing you talk about Jesus. And you're just like, have you ever asked yourself why that bothers you so much? Why does it bug you so much that I love the Lord? What's going on in your heart? And so just, he's asking Saul, just consider it. Why does it, what have I done? What actions have I done against you that make you so angry at me? Or is this just a spiritual thing? So he shows that, he shows reason. He asks him, why do you pursue your servant? You know, what, like give a reason for what you're doing and hear the words of his servant. So when David says that, hear the words of his servant, he's, he's saying, Saul, let me offer you some advice. And he gives him two options. One, you can give an offering, right? So if the Lord has stirred you up against me, give him an offering and, and make it right and we'll fix it. Like that's the whole Levitical law. Like, if there's something wrong or something un, unjust about a situation, we can offer a sacrifice and God forgives it and we're done. So if it's the Lord doing this, Saul, and you're getting stirred up, give an offering and get it dealt with. Or then option two, if it's the children of men, if it's people in your camp that are lying about me and saying things, then curse those suckers. Like, deal with them. And let's get those people out of the way. So he kind of he gives Saul advice, but he does it with humility and grace. A great model for how we should give people advice when we need to. David recognizes that there are people in Saul's court that are slandering him. That's the only thing that could be happening. Because last time we saw Saul and David, they were good again. So not having communicated at all, somehow Saul's now attacking him again. Why? Because there's somebody in Saul's camp that's against him. And so David's kind of setting this up, giving Saul the out again. Um, and, and, and this is something that I have to come to terms with as I read the Old Testament too. David doesn't have a problem saying, God curse evil people, right? And, and the, goal is, the goal is to stop the evil. It's not that the, he hates the person, but he hates the evil behavior that's being done. And by being cursed by God is one way to realize what you're doing is wrong and you should stop it. But the actual judgment then is still left to God as to how they're going to be dealt with for eternity. At the very end, it says, they have driven me out. This lying about David makes it so he can't worship at the tabernacle of God. And that's one of the things David has loved since he was a kid. It's his joy to be in God's presence and to sing his praises. But because of these people lying about him, he can't safely go to the tabernacle and do one of the things he loves most in life. You're driving me out. Like, I can't stay in Israel if you keep attacking me all the time. You're making it so I can't even make a life. So even if one person's not allowed to worship in purity, it, then that's a curse to the people that push them out. If there's even one person that feels like they can't come to church because they're going to be judged, the curse is on the people that made them feel that way. 
right? Everybody's welcome. Everybody has a place. None of us are perfect. And just that idea of David, like David saying, curse these people that have made it so I can't come into the tabernacle and be comfortable there. The next chapter then, um, there's this persistent attack and run is going to actually cause David to go live with the Philistines. He does move, and this is the reason why that we get in these verses. So verse 20, so now don't let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. Don't kill me. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea. He did this last time too. Why are, You're hunting nothing. I'm just some guy with my little group of people out here. When one hunts a partridge in the mountains. I looked this up. This is fascinating. It's a really vivid, colorful, poetic image. If you want to hunt partridge, you just keep chasing them. Like they don't get up and fly away like eagles. They just get up, go about 20 feet away and land. Casey's nodding his head like, yeah, I know how to do this. So then they get up, they fly, but they're kind of fat birds. So they don't fly very far and they don't fly very high and they get tired. So if you do that a few times, you chase them up in the mountains where the air is thin, eventually you can walk right up to them, pick them up and eat them, right? They stop running. You just wear them out. And that's kind of what David's saying here. He's been running for Saul for three to five years now. He's just tired. Like, man, Saul, if you keep coming out to kill me, I'm going to have to go. And I got to leave. And here's the thing. When godly people leave, watch out what happens after they're gone. Like things tend to fall apart. And when David leaves to go be with the Philistines, things are going to kind of fall apart for Saul. So having godly people in your company, in your group, in your church, it blesses the whole body. And when Saul pushes him out, it curses the whole body. So there's a, a deep set of things getting modeled here that the rest of the Bible is going to flesh out. Verse 21, then Saul said, I have sinned. Remember last time he was all tearful about it and whatever? This time he's like, I've sinned. Return my son, David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. So commentators are all over the map on this one. Sometimes they're like, this is a false apology based on his actions, which I think is how, like there's some truth to that. David doesn't take this seriously in the text. Saul's proven himself to say things like this before and then they're not true. Um, the other thing is that Saul might, maybe Saul's sincere here. Return my son David. He again feels shame, but like usual, he just gets convinced by his aides later that to not do this. In verse 25, David does not come back with him because this time Saul asks him to come back with him. I don't know if you caught that. Last time they kind of went their separate ways. This time Saul's like, why don't you come back to the palace with me? And David never does in verse 25. He just doesn't argue with Saul about it. He just goes the different direction. He says, I've played the fool. Now for a king to admit that in front of all of his men, he says, I have sinned. That's an official confession. So at nearly every step, Saul's worried about what other people think. You wonder if what Saul's doing here is to please his men. That's a third take on this. Maybe he's just saying what he thinks his men need to hear so that he can keep leadership a little bit longer, right? He sees the hearts of his men going to David, and he's trying to keep the hearts of his men. I don't, there's a lot, again, there's a lot of different ways to kind of read what's going on here. And David answered and said, here's the king's spear. David doesn't bring him the spear like he brought him the corner of his cloak. He uh, instead says, let one of the young men come over and get it. Like, I'm not getting close to you, Saul. <laughs> I've been duped by you too many times. I'm keeping my distance. 
come get your stuff. And again, this is, I'm not even going to take your spear. I'm not going to take your, your jug. Like I'm going to, I'm just wiping the dust off my feet for you. Like come take your stuff. I don't even want your stuff. David already made his point. <clears throat> and by the way, David didn't address Saul ever. He addressed Abner and the men to start out with and showed them these things. That leans towards the argument that Saul's just stepping in here, trying to take charge again. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness for the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. <clears throat> and indeed, if your life was valued as much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord uh, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Dave, Saul said to David, may you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So Saul went on his way and Saul, er, David went on his way and Saul returned to the palace. David points out why he values Saul and he wants the, the reason he values Saul is not because of Saul. He values Saul because someday he hopes God will give him blessing in the same way he's giving Saul blessing. We should think about that about all of our enemies. The nicer we are, if we're all enemies of God before we were saved, may God have mercy on us the way we have mercy on other people. The Lord's Prayer has that concept built into it. May God forgive us the way we forgive other people. And may that be, may that be something that's fair and just in the, in the world. Psalm 18, verse 20, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me, for I've kept the ways of the Lord, and I've not wickedly departed from my God. So David even writes in the Psalms, like, this is how it works. And so he's not going to touch Saul because it's the wrong thing to do, and he wants God to see that. So he's trusting God will be the judge. I think David's happy when he sees Saul's kingdom collapse. And when Saul dies, like, okay, God took care of it. It's time for me to be king. They go their separate ways. <laughs> this is... This is a big deal sometimes. Like when you've been betrayed again and again and again, like God does not call us to just be walking mats and deal and do that many, many times. He calls us to forgive. And I think David shows great mercy and grace with Saul. He also doesn't go back to live with him, right? They're not going to live in the same house together. And that's something that I think is, we need to give ourselves room to be wise and prudent like David but also be forgiving in our hearts and not hold things against people. You know, we had a, a friend of mine that lived with us for a while. And after about a year, the, the season was about over, right? And we eventually had to just say, you know, we think it's time to move on. And the amazing thing is he felt the same way. Yeah, it's time to move on. <laughs> and we're like, I want to still be friends with you for a long, long time, but that's not going to happen if we're living in the same house. Like we have different schedules and how we do things and, and it's time to move along. And I think David, the way he deals with Saul here is just great. Chapter 27. Well, remember too, like we came off of chapter 24 and David had this great victory with Saul. And then right after that, he gets tempted to go murder people. This time he gets this great victory with Saul and he actually goes and murders people. So this seems to be a pattern. And last time Abigail was there where God sent somebody to save him from that sin. But at the same token, this time, nobody preserves David from that sin. Nobody intervenes. It's almost like God's saying, David, if you want to just be a murdering thug, I'm not going to, at some point, God's a gentleman and he's not going to force people to do things against their will. So 
this time around, we see probably, I think this is a darker chapter for David than Bathsheba. But here's what we know about David. He's not the Messiah. And, I, and, I, and it's one of the things that as great as David is as a king, as many good things that he does in life, he's a human just like you and me. He screws up and God forgives him. But he needs Jesus even though he's establishing the throne that Jesus will sit on. Because Jesus comes and he sits on the throne of David. Right? So, but David's not the Messiah. He's not God. And, and I think sometimes that, you know, we need to be reminded of that. And the Bible gracefully includes these stories not to protect and puff David up in the eyes of future readers, but to just tell us the truth about David. And that's how this is, it's written in that kind of format. The reason it's here, it doesn't make David look very good at all, but it's true. It's what happened. So as a historian, they put it in there. And David said in his heart, okay, that's a bad start. So far, David has always talked to the Lord. The heart is wicked and it's deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17, 9. And it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? When we go to our own heart to figure out our theology, when we just, you know, this is what I think is the right thing and we're not rooting that in the word of God, we're following after our own heart and it's wrong. In the book of Judges, that was the wrong as everybody did was right in their own eyes. So if everybody's making up their own mind about things and everybody tweaks it a little bit how they want it in their favor, at the end of the day, you got chaos. So this isn't a good start to the chapter. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more and in any part of Israel, so I shall escape out of his hand. Okay, there's so many lies wrapped into verse 1. It's a big, long verse, but it establishes the chapter. David does this out of his thing. He's bummed out that Saul's still attacking him, and he's not going to get away from it. Um, Literally in the Hebrew, it's, I shall be carried off into Saul's hands someday. So my translation's not, that has a slightly different tone. I'm going to get sold out to Saul eventually. Like at some point, Saul's going to catch up to me. I'm not going to keep getting away. To think that is lie number one that David's buying into. He has escaped Saul for three, five years. It hasn't been fun. They're living in caves. They're living in the wilderness. But he's never been caught largely because God's intervened again and again. Why would he think God would stop doing that? But again, he's at a low point. Uh, So after David turns Saul number one, he struggles with anger. Abigail shows up. This time he's struggling with despair, discouragement, unbelief in God's promises. Um, and he says, I'll perish someday. God's promised him that he would be king. So now he's not believing God's word anymore. He's, he's, well, maybe God said it, but it's not true. He just got done seeing how God deals with Nabal, but he doesn't continue to have faith that God will deal with Saul that way. He does in his actions, but then he follows up with the wrong thing. You ever been on a mountaintop experience? Like when you come home from Bible camp and you're all juiced up for the Lord. And then a week later, you realize you're back to doing the same stuff you did before you went to Bible camp. And you're like, dang, that didn't stick. You know, and it's what happens. Spiritually, we have great victories, but then there's a conflicting force. There is a spiritual war for our hearts. So when we're getting closer to the Lord, we're going to get more conflict and more trial. Well, David falls to despair, and he's, he's not any worse than all of us. Like, this happens. Um, his assurance of salvation is essentially shaken because he's forgotten God's word. He's forgotten what God said. He said, I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. So let's add misdirected action on top of our despair, right? So first despair, then he goes the wrong direction. 
Uh, God called them to abide in the land that he's promised him, so to live with the Philistines. He, that is not, God, it's actually the opposite of what God told God's people. He said they were supposed to drive these folks out, not live with them and be friends with them. He says, there's nothing better for me. In the Hebrew, that's the word good, pleasant, excellent. So it's not uncommon today that we actually think that way. If God's people are a pain in the butt, good godly people will say, I'm just done with these people. There's nothing, if this is the best God's got, I'm out of here, right? And if you've like done any church hopping ever, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're just like, man, I'm just, it's better for me to not be here than it is to be here. And that's a really despairing point for any believer. When you realize that God's people are a bunch of sinners just like me, but you can't even find a place that teaches and reminds you of God's word, that's despairing. And it's hard. Why would I want to hang out with God's people when they're all against me anyways? Right? It's despairing. And it's not, and I want to make this clear. God still tells you to go hang out with God's people, even though they're messed up sometimes. It's not an excuse. It's called despair. It's contrary to God's word. And David is told where to go. He had his own prophet. Remember Gad the prophet back in 1 Samuel 22 verse 5? Now the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest of Hereth. He obeyed Gad, but in leaving this territory, he's now leaving where God told him to be. So don't mistake that when David goes off to the Philistines, he starts with despair, then he takes the wrong direction, and now he's moving an action that's against God's will. He's actually moving... Con Isn't it quick how fast that happens? Right? It's, it's hard and disciplined to get close to the Lord, but to fall away just takes minutes. So I shall escape, maybe even give up or just drop God's plan. Maybe God's just not going to make me king. And I, I'm just going to give up on what God had for me. It says out of his hand, and the his there is in reference to Saul. I shall escape out of Saul's hand. But that's not truth either. He's always been in God's hand. He's never been in Saul's hand. Chapter 17, 24, 25, he's never been in Saul's hand. That's a total lie that he's telling himself. So he says something in his heart. It leads to despair, which leads him astray. And now he's telling absolute lies contrary to God's word. Just like that. Boom. And this is a guy after God's own heart. Like we should admire David as a whole, as a character in the Bible. And he goes right from heart, despair, astray, lies. And it just boom, just like that. All in one verse, like in, that's how long it takes David to just be in despair. We forget God's word, misdirection just happens. And that's how it is. So then verse two, that was just the first verse. Then David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. That's a Philistine city. So David dwelt with Achish at Gath. He and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam and Jezreelitis. You try to pronounce that. And Gabahel the Carmelitis. She likes to make candy. Nabal's widow. And so it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. So actually then, here's one way to read this. What David did here actually got Saul to stop pursuing him. It's amazing when you go buddy up with the world how you have no more conflict with the world. It's just that easy. And, and why would the influence of David, if it's left the country, why would Saul be worried about him anymore? Well, he's now with my enemies, and the enemy of my enemy is my friend or something. I don't know if that applies. Forget I said that. 
it says each man with his household. So there's 600 men, but each man has a household with him. Now, a household in the ancient world could be 20 to 100 people. So the numbers here are, even if each man has a wife, which they should, if they're good Jewish guys, they should have a wife by age 15. If that's the case, then you at least have 1,200 people. And if these men have made any babies whatsoever, even one baby per family, you're already at 1,800 people. You can see how these numbers are growing through Samuel? So each man with his household. So they're all traveling together now. Here's the thing. The sin of David isn't just affecting David. As a leader, it affects 1,800 plus people that are now going to go live in the middle of the enemy's camp with idol worship all around them and, and behaviors all around them that then they got to resist. So it notes the way they approached. They didn't approach as warriors. They approached as settlers, every man coming with his family. That's strategic. He doesn't want to walk up in a quiche with all the soldiers out in front. So they're all coming up with their families like they're settlers. So why would a quiche accept David? couple things. When you bring that many people, in the ancient world, population just isn't that big yet. So 1,800 plus people, that's a lot of tax income that expands your empire. So Akish could accept David just because of the money. This time David's shown up not by himself as a loony bin drooling on his beard. This time's David's showing up with people that can grow crops and add, and add warriors to the army. So when Akish goes to war, he's going to call David's men to come fight with him. So, that, so he could be doing it for money. He could be doing it for the extra soldiers. That's nothing to sniff at. Uh, he could be doing it. One possibility is that the word Akish is like the word Pharaoh, that this Akish isn't the same guy that, had, that was there before. And that's, that's one thought, too, as David's dealing with a new person here. Either way, David's running from Saul. Akish doesn't like Saul, so he's just got people joining his forces. So why would you stop that? So... One reading of this is David is successfully bringing himself and all of his men into the enemy's camp and submitting to the people he should be driving out. Sin. A second viable reading of all this is David is seeing really clearly and he's actually choosing to carry out God's word, but he's going to use stealth and guile to do it. So one thought is like, David making this move with the keys is actually really good strategy because what he's going to do is attack God's enemies. He's just going to do it in a very different way. And he's going to do it without Saul on his case. As we go through it, you can think of both of those readings of this. Then David said to Akish, If I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I might dwell there, for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? I don't want to be a burden to you, Akish. Just give me some farm town, and I'll go grow crops, pay taxes, and we'll be ready to go to war for you. Verse 6, so Akish came, gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one year and four months. That's important. This is a short season in David's campaign and in his life. But it's an important season because some cool things happen in Ziklag. First of all, Gath, Ziklag, Jerusalem, right? Ziklag's putting David in between the two kingdoms. So if the Philistines are going to attack, they're going to go right past Ziklag. If the Israelites are going to attack, the first thing they're going to hit is David and his men. So this is strategic for Akish to put David in the no man's land. And this is a city that we know they would have just taken over. And this gives us internal evidence as to when this book was written. 
It says to this day that he that he's in the uh, with the kings of Judah. So when it says has belonged to the kings of Judah, that's not the kings of Israel. So it gives us some dating power there. That means that this book was assembled and compiled after Israel had split into the northern and southern kingdoms, but before they went off to Babylon. So it really puts this within a pretty short period of time of when First and Second Samuel were kind of put together. And that little phrase there helps us with that dating. Sometime between Solomon and Babylon, this kind of happens. So David wants his own city so he can live as he pleases. He shows up like settlers and he asks for a settler's request. Just give us land, we can settle. So he does. Um, spiritually speaking, in this one year and four months, uh, we have no record of any Psalms being written. That lends to the this is sin narrative because Saul stopped writing music. Like we've kind of seen that almost every chapter, right? This is when he wrote this Psalm and this song. But for some reason, while he's with the enemy, he's not writing God's songs anymore. The music goes, this is the day the music died. And David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from old. But as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt, whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camel, and the apparel. Like, that's important, the apparel. They're all wearing Gucci. And then they returned and came to Achish. So first, this is not the behavior God's called him to. We come into that a lot. And we got to be really careful when people say, well, in the Bible, God tells him to slaughter everybody. God has not spoken in this chapter. David's doing things according to his own heart. The Bible's really clear about that. And what he's doing is murdering people, right? And he's not doing this because God called him to. So the raiding that's there, the word in the Hebrew means to to strip something away. They're going there to take all these things from those people. The Geshurites, I'm going to go through each of these three. The Geshurites territory, they were supposed to drive the Geshurites back in Joshua 13.2. They were told to drive these people out of the land. Joshua 13.3, nevertheless, the children of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites. That lends itself to the second reading of this. David's actually doing the work of God that Joshua started. He's picking back up with those ancient commands of God and he's driving these people out. The difference is they were told to drive them out. They weren't told to slaughter them and take all their stuff. To drive people out, they're taking their apparel with them and they're leaving the land and they're settling somewhere else. The Gerizites, um, only mention of them in the entire Bible is this verse. Likely they were Canaanites living by Mount Gezer, like Gezerites. Um, Judges 129 nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwell in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. We know there were Canaanites living by that mountain. And so it could be that they were raiding Israel from that spot. But again, you've got a second group of people that are still dwelling in the land. And David's pushing them out. The Amalekites, we've seen them a ton. They've been enemies of Israel since the very start. Numbers 13, 14, they're the first anti-Semites. They're the first to attack Israel as they're leaving uh, Egypt. Uh, every time someone like decides to go attack Israel, the Amalekites are there helping them out. Like These are people that have been against Israel from ages old. David would have grown up knowing that. He would have known these people are a constant plague for the Israelites. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Also, the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Whenever there was a battle to fight, the Amalekites were like, oh, we're going to go kill some Israelites? Let's do it. We're in. 
So this is, by the way, all three of these towns, this is the Gaza Strip. This is still the contested area of Israel. From this spot down to Egypt is that little strip of the Mediterranean Sea that has always been a conflict spot for Israel. It is to this day. Um, David then acts, because his heart tells him to, to kill and rob, but he's killing and robbing the enemies of God. You can read that as either he's in deep, deep sin or he's actually trying to carry out God's word, but he's doing it in the wrong way, which is still sin, but it's not the same. Either way, you, you got to decide what to do with this passage. Good luck with that. Um, this is more than just driving them out. Now I want to read what God said so we can see that this is actually sin. What God said in Exodus 23, 30, little by little, I, God, will drive them out from before you until you've increased and you inherit the land. He repeats it in Numbers 22, Deuteronomy 9, Joshua 14, Joshua 23. Again and again and again, God says, I will drive them out. You just need to go push. And that's all he's ever asked Israel to do with these people. So what David's doing here is not what God asked them to do. And I just want to make that really clear. Taking away the sheep, David's essentially becoming the, the thug that Saul thought he was, only he's not attacking Saul. He's attacking the enemies of Saul. And he does it with some guile. Um, I also want to point out, again, just this idea of like murdering and killing people. By leaving nobody alive, that allows what's going to happen in verse 10. Like he's doing that strategically because in his own heart, if he leaves one person alive, they can go back and report that to King Akish. David attacked us, right? These are allies of Akish that he's attacking. But, and I also want to point out, not only is he disobeying God's word, but David will be held account to this sin. And so 1 Chronicles 28, we'll jump forward there. Then King David rose to his feet. Hear me, my brethren and my people. I had it in my heart, same thing we saw in verse 1, to build a house of the rest of the, of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and he had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, you shall not build the house for my name because you've been a man of war and you've shed blood. God actually holds David account for these sins. It's wrong to do it, and God actually holds him account. He didn't get to do the thing that would have been probably his life's dream, which is to make a house of praise for a guy that writes praise music. Like, this is his dream, and God doesn't let him do it because of what he's doing in this chapter. We don't see a perfect David, but we do see a truthful David. And I think that's good. Verse 10, then Akish would say, where have you made a raid today? Like, this is just sounds so familiar, right? They're just buddies now. What have you been doing today, David? And David would say, against the southern area of Judah and against the southern area of the Jeremielites and against the southern area of the Kenites. So... David lies to Akish about who he's attacking. This is backsliding even more. If you could say that lying is worse than murder, like it goes in that order, but he's just adding to his sins. Judah, southern tribe of Israel, I'm attacking the Israelites. The Jeremelites, we have no idea, just like the other one, this is the only mention in the Bible of the second group, some town. Uh, the Kenites, we've seen a ton, just like the Amalekites, only on the other side. The Kenites sided with Israel when they came out of Egypt. They were the first group of people to side with Israel that weren't Israelites. Right? When they went to attack the Amalekites, remember in Numbers 24, or uh, in Joshua, they sent people in to say to the Kenites, you need to clear out because we're going to attack this city. Like the Kenites have been allies of Israel 
for as long as the Amalekites have been enemies of Israel. They're a, they're a balance here. Numbers 24, 21. This is a prophecy about the Kenites. Firm is your dwelling place and your nest is set in the rock. So there, it's prophesied the Kenites will be abiding with Israel forevermore. Like they're welcomed into the family. So when David says this, he says, I'm attacking Israel, I'm attacking some other people, and I'm attacking the Kenites. And that it's almost a perfect balance to who he actually attacked. Like, um, I think Akish never doubles checks this because nobody's left alive to double check it. But David's coming in with sheep and apparel and all sorts of nice things. And so why would Akish doubt that David's attacking his own allies? Because there's none of them left. So this creates a nice cycle. Think about it. David attacks and destroys a city, brings the loot to Akish, and says, I've attacked some Israelites, here you go. And then Akish gets news that this entire allied city just got wiped out by the Israelites. David, you should go attack them. He goes and attacks another one of the allies, brings back the loot, and then he says, I attacked the Israelites who did this, and here's all this stuff coming back. So if the little sheep were branded with the Amalekite brand, well, yeah, because the Israelites stole them, and now I've stolen them back. And, he, and there's, no Amalek, there's no, none of them left, so that means Akish gets a huge portion of these. David probably got a portion too. So in chapter 27, again, now we see David's growing kingdom add wealth. Now he's getting abundance, but he's doing it through guile and lying and murdering and all sorts of bad things. But it is, at the same time, the kingdom of David is growing, and it is getting bigger and more powerful. So David doesn't question it. Likely he, he likes hearing how successful David is and that he's now fighting for him. So the, the enemy loves when God's people fight themselves. Why would Akish question it? It's such a great narrative. So even though he, he never sees if it's true or not, he's happy to believe something that's not true because he likes the sound of it. Then verse 11. David would, neither sa- would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath. That's why he's doing this, is he doesn't want them to report back to Achish, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did, or David did this. And thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. We get a clue there. Thus was his behavior. So that lends itself to the narrative that this is all sin. This is the kind of sin David did while he was there. Or, alternative reading, thus was his behavior is, This is how strategic he was the whole time. This is how he continued to fight God's enemies without being attacked by Saul. He just used great wisdom and how to do this. Honestly, the commentators are kind of equally split on the ones I read on this as to is David just being shrewd here or is David deep, deep into sin? And for me, the lack of Psalms says a lot as to which side I kind of lean on this. Um, There's no indication of hope There's no indication that David's doing this to rebuild or go back to Israel. Like, for all David knows, this is kind of an ongoing situation and what's going to happen. And it's going to be the next chapter that stops this after a year and four months. So Achish believed David, saying, He's made his people and Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. Achish thinks he just got a new battle general. Why would he doubt it? He keeps bringing loot back, right? He keeps you know, redressing the wrongs of these Israelites. Um, Akish doesn't seem to be threatened by David, which is a lie. And Saul did feel threatened by David, which is also a lie. David's not better off where he's at because he's still dealing with a leader that lies to themselves, one way or the other. 
in the midst of, of all of this, God keeps growing and adding to David's position on the planet. And he's going to gather more and more defectors from Saul's. I just want to, I think this is important to know what's going on during this year and four months. So I want to jump to 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And I'm just reading some kind of selected verses as they give an account of what goes on during this period of time. Now, these were the men who came to David at Ziklag. That's the year and a half where they're in this little town. While he was still a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish, and they were among the mighty men, the helpers in war. This is when David's troops learned to fight because they went into battle after battle after battle together and they kept coming home alive. So this is where these mighty men are getting trained up too. Some Gadites joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness. Mighty men of valor. Remember the Gadites are the ones that were good with slings? Like that was the artillery crew. They were famous for being deadly in battle. Men trained for battle who could handle shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and were as swift as gazelles in the mountains. They were fast and they bit hard. The Gadites. Here's another one. These were the men of the sons of Gad, the captains of the army. The least was over a hundred and the greatest was over a thousand. All of the Gadites became the generals in this army that David was building. None of them were like privates. They were all commanders and corporals. That's how good they were. Then the sons of the sons of Benjamin and Judah came to David at the stronghold. So he added Israelites to his army. We're getting way past 1,800 people here. Like he's building a kingdom. And then the spirit came upon Amase, the chief of the captains. And he said, we are yours, O David. We're on your side, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace be to you and peace to your helpers. Saul lost his captains and his generals and his lieutenants. A huge portion of his military leadership just walked to Ziklag and gave, swore themselves to David. Why? Because what David did in the last chapter. They're watching how these people lead and how they run things. And they can see that David's a man of honor and they start walking to him. And that's why this really lends itself to the other narrative. That what David's doing here is highly strategic. And he's not doing it the way God said to do it. But God's continuing to work through David even though he's screwing it up. Right? And he's moving people out of Israel that have refused and resisted Israel for hundreds of years. And he's just, judgment is coming and he's using David as a tool of judgment. It's another way to read this. Um... For God helps you. So David received them and made them captains of the troop. And they helped David against the bands of raiders, for they were all mighty men of valor and they were captains in the army. For at that time, they came to David day by day to help him until it was a great army like the army of God. It's interesting Samuel leaves all of this detail out. And I think to get the, the writer of Samuel... I think the writer of Samuel wants to, us to see that what David's doing here is not God's will. What the writer of Chronicles wants us to see is how God built the new nation of Israel from within. And Israelites joined it, and the Gadites joined it. Benjamin came on board. Judah came on board. And day by day, I just think that's amazing. It reminds me of Acts chapter 5, verse 14. And the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Like the mighty men and women just kept showing up day by day. Like there, it just becomes routine. A year and four months, every day somebody's walking through the door saying, I vow my life to David. I'm going to follow David at the risk of their own lives, walking into enemy territory and coming under the King David. 
So David finds himself leading a massive group of people, an army like the size of the army of God. That's like, a, that's a massive number of people start showing up on David's side. At some point, both Akish and Saul need to wake up. <laughs> like there, there's a new kingdom forming right in the middle of their territory, uh, which we'll get to next week. Uh, I think these men would have joined David if he stayed in Israel where he was told to go. I think if he would have listened to Gad, the, these men, their hearts were stirred when David stood on the hill and said, I'm not here to kill you. Here's your spear. Take it. Throws it on the ground and walks away. I think that's when all these captains and leaders realized we're following the wrong guy. And they had made a decision to follow David, and it just took them time to get there, Right? So if David had followed God's voice and stuck it out and trusted that God would continue to save him versus Saul, I think his numbers would have grown the exact same way. So God's blessing, I think, what David did right because people are loyal to him. But he's not necessarily blessing what David did wrong. It's going to get him in some real sticky spots. So the, the danger for David was never real. It was always perceived. It's what he told himself in his heart that got him in trouble. So when God moves, he's moving in people individually, and then they all start acting in concert. I love this. It's the coolest thing in the world. We're going to do an art day, and individually God moves in your hearts going, I would like to make myself a watercolor picture. And individually, everybody, like people just show up, and they have a great day, and they're blessed, and they go home and go, my life is good. I got to make watercolors with Alyssa. And it's an amazing moment, but that's how God works. And he does it on a small scale in fellowship, but he does it on a large scale in building kingdoms. And he does it on an even larger scale, building a church that is in every country on this planet right now. It's amazing. And we shouldn't underestimate how God moves. We should never be surprised that the Philistines don't put it on their news channels. You know, that thousands of people are getting saved here and people are serving God here and there's a group of four people loving the Lord over here. And God knows and watches and sees all over the planet that he's just moving people's hearts in the right direction. He's orchestrating all of it. And I love how they, they're showing up with David every day here and it just keeps, even though he's not perfect, God's still going to move because he's going to make a kingdom under David. And so when we serve God, the goal isn't to be perfect the goal is to stop backsliding and get ourselves right. But it's not that God's not going to finish his plans with us. He has plans for you. They're for good. They're not for bad. And we do our part, and God's always doing his part. Even when David's screwing up, God is still moving forward with his orchestration. So we know about the growth of army through First Chronicles, but I don't know if that's the focus of this chapter. We're supposed to see that David's using lies and deceits to attack the enemies of God for whatever that is. We have David then, I think, at the lowest place in his life. He's no better than the Philistines. He's just killing Philistines like Philistines kill Israelites. And the cycle here, he's not doing anything different. He's hanging out with the enemy. He's exposing his people to the Philistines. And in the next uh, couple chapters, he, this is going to bring him close to losing his family, all of his belongings, his whole life is on the verge of getting destroyed. He just doesn't know it yet because sin feels awfully good while you're doing it. And it's when it comes for its moment of destruction that David has to turn his course. So the next chapter, he's, Akish is going to call him out to war so he can't dupe him anymore. He has to march in the battle and attack Israel, which David doesn't even want to kill one person of Israel. 
So now he's in a position where he's supposed to go to war with them. So we'll see how he deals with that. For now, we're just going to leave him in the 16 months of being a brigand and, you know, the, the dread pirate Roberts, Roberts just doing bad things out in the countryside. And that's where we'll leave David. We'll meet him again next week. Now, it was interesting, like Sunday morning, like this morning, we absolutely hit on resurrection topics this morning. But when you're in the middle of Samuel, there's not much to connect with the resurrection. And I'm not even going to try because I don't really see the connection here. Um, but the Lord, there's someone in this room maybe that really needed to hear that David was a sinner too. And, and maybe that gives you hope and encouragement. And it's still Easter no matter what. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for these narratives, these histories, Lord, that you've provided us. Uh, you've Part of your orchestration is you've given us your word and what you've said and how you've done things. And tonight we got a chapter where your word was not part of it. And we get to see how that goes on the opposite side for David too. Lord, help us to learn from it, to be wiser, to be shrewder with how we deal with people. Um, because we have seen examples that are both good and bad, and we know right from wrong. So help us to be people of honor and grace and integrity. Um, help us to learn what David was teaching the men in the first chapter tonight. Um, and Lord, help us to, to be people that follow your word and trust in your word, to not be like how David behaves in, the, in chapter 27. Lord, help us to serve you and love you. We thank you for your death and resurrection, showing us a way. Lord, we have undeniable evidence that you have, pro you have beaten sin and death and you offer that to all of us, that we can beat it too. And Lord, through your Holy Spirit, we ask for your forgiveness for our sins so we can enter into that redemption uh, price that you've bought and paid and redeemed those to come into your kingdom. So Lord, forgive us of our sins. We come before you humbly, I hope. Uh, Lord, we come before you as, as you are our Lord and you are our King and we seek to follow you. So, Lord, help us to do no wrong. Help us to not embarrass your name in sin, but, Lord, to live holy and righteous and pure lives to honor your name and give glory to you. Lord, none of us in this room are perfect, but you've redeemed us and you've bought us, and we want to serve you. Use us. Put us where you want us. Teach us your ways so that we can become your servants in every way we can. Lord, each person in this room knows a different group of people. And as we go out of here and we, we leave for the mission field, as we leave this house today, Lord, help us to look at every person we encounter as an opportunity to share your love um, and invite them and, and, and bring them into a better relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.